and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about item shops, the places in games where you can trade 87 dragon teeth to buy a sweet chest plate, or just put a basket on the shopkeeper's head and take it for free. Tell me discuss shops and games as a man who wishes he could just order all his potions online so he wouldn't have to interact with any shopkeepers ever again. My good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, what are you buying? <laughs> We're all going to be replaced by robots someday. It would be great if I didn't have to interact with NPCs in games. Uh, if I could just do it all oh through. <laughs> I just don't want to listen to their whole spiel Some every time. Some sort of like in-game app yeah, where like, you wouldn't me, have to interact with NPCs. Give me an in-game Amazon because... I mean, it's fine. Like, that's just the direction everyone's heading, but we might have to provide universal health care or uh, basic income for these shopkeepers. That's like some shopkeeping inception going on that's there. That's true. <laughs> well, Jared, we have an uh, amazing guest today. He's the founder of Upfall Studios and the developer behind Quest of Dungeons. Joining us all the way from beautiful Portugal, it's David Amador. David, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm doing fine, thank you. How are you guys today? Doing, I'm, doing, doing, I'm doing well. Yeah, it's a, uh, here in Arizona, it is now in the hundreds. I, I know some places in the world, it just recently stopped being freezing, but uh, here I'm actually melting. That's that's 37 degrees Celsius for every rest of the world. <laughs> did, you Google, exactly. did you Google that real quick? I, uh, shut up. He did. No, I he knew that off the top did. of my head. You couldn't hear me typing. <laughs> How is uh how is it in in Portugal right now? It's a bit warmer today actually. I think we're starting to enter summer finally uh and uh, but it's been a bit chilly for the past few weeks but today we it was uh, quite warm throughout the day. So it's getting nice to stay outside. Very nice, very nice. Now David, I'm I'm curious, how how does someone in Portugal get their start in the video game industry? Like where where did you start your journey to becoming a game developer? So my first contact like professionally was studying I was studying what's the word in uh, computer science uh, like computer coding programming and there was this game studio that was opening up. Uh they were f- uh, starting up with some funding they got and I jumped in that I, I went to an interview. I really wanted to work in games, and because there was there wasn't many things, I tried to. So that was my first. So they uh, they uh, hired me, and that was my first experience professionally. I, I tried to make games before, like on my own, uh, learning from books and all of that. But that was my jump, like my start point from there, and I never stopped after that. What kind of games were you making with that that first job that you had got? Did you jump right into like AAA development, or what? What kind of studio was it? No, it was a it was a small studio, so around uh, probably ten, twelve, and I was hired. So they were working on two games back then. One one was a a more uh, I wouldn't say AAA because the the budget was really small. They had funding for two games. One was for the Xbox three hundred and sixty, and then there was this casual game. Uh, th- and that's the one they they got me into uh, working because I had pretty much zero experience. So they they had a two team person to make that game, and it was a uh, downloadable. Sadly, none of the so they they both got finished and completed, but they never were published. That happens to a lot of games, I'm sure. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I when I was in um, QA, I was working on a game for a long time, like several months and i mean i was just on the qa side on development they must have been working on it for a lot longer than that uh never saw the light of day 
I guess my uh, all my bug reports finally killed that project. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure it happens. Sure, it happens all the time. Uh, so in in Portugal, is there a is there like a, a market that developers are designing for? It, you know, is PC gaming big in Portugal? Is mobile big in Portugal? Are consoles big? Like, what what is the the market like out there? So from uh, from a, a consumer point, it's not that big because we aren't. The population isn't that uh, big as well. We're ten million people more or less. So the market is growing, but it's still small compared to. I don't know Spain, where near uh, it's right across the the door, so to speak. But it, it's yeah. it's small, uh, but it's growing. It's a very uh, I don't know what's the word for it, it's getting hyped more yeah. with each new console, with each new. I would say probably the the it's a majority is PlayStation here. Okay, what was your personal experience like when you uh, growing up? Did you grow up in Portugal? Yeah, I did. I did. So how did you get into video games like as a hobby? What interested you about video games that you made decide to turn it into a career? The, my first introduction was uh, uh, my mother worked at a place that they got a computer uh, with, I think it was just DOS. It didn't even have Windows. So one guy installed Tetris and Prince of Persia and that I was hooked forever. <laughs> I couldn't like it, it amazed me that you could press keys on, and move something on the screen. So that was my first introduction as a player, and I started wanting to know how I could make that. Like, how can people do that? Uh, it's not something because it's not a movie, right? You, you press play, and the movie comes up. It, mm-hmm. You're proactively interacting. So that was my the thing that got me really interested in playing and uh, making them. Now, now, what got you interested in starting your own studio, Upfall Studios? What, did you see a some sort of gap in the market that wasn't being fulfilled or was it just you'd had enough of living the nine to five life and wanted to start your own company? Like what was it that made you want to start Upfall Studios? My first introduction professionally was that studio that I told you and I stayed there for four years or so and then it went bankrupt. It happens. So Hmm. when I got out, it was like, I don't, I have zero games that I can tell people. I stayed there for four years and I have nothing to show because we couldn't even talk about some the stuff that we made because it was uh, protected by NDA. And I was like, should I go to another studio? There's nothing here in Portugal. I wasn't in a moving uh, overseas uh, to another country mood. So I decided to get a job in tech, general tech, like making mobile apps and making websites and working on games on my own free time because I could release actually release something. That was my motivation for doing that and I kept doing it and eventually I reached a point that I could quit my day job and switch fully to independent development and well, cool. I'll keep that's doing like, that's it that's the dream I'll keep doing it until it falls apart I guess <laughs> <laughs> that's a good strategy in life that's that's pretty much my yeah. plan too it's my long-term plan <laughs> just just ride it till the wheels fall yeah, off yeah just whatever yeah, I mean, happens it's just, I'm just might as going. well try and regret later I guess there you go yeah and you've enjoyed you've enjoyed the process of, of running your own studio it's been rewarding so far it's been rewarding it's been a, a, a learning experience as well because I had no idea the amount of work I imagine that okay so I'm going to keep all the time making games, but it's not. You have to run the studio. 
You have to deal with all the other stuff that people don't usually don't even think about. I haven't think, thought about it, to be honest. So there's a lot of stuff, and I keep learning every day. Like you, uh, I, I'm not doing. I'm not 100 of the time just making games. It, there's a lot of stuff, marketing, and it's even harder for small studios. So we have to. I have to wear a lot of hats. But it's fun. It's fun. It's it's tire. Uh, it, sometimes it can be a bit frustrating because there's a lot of stuff that I don't know and I'm not good at it, like marketing and I don't know making sales pitch. But I have to, unless I get a, a bunch of money to hire someone else, I have to do that myself. So it's a balance. You have yeah. To that's a sentiment that I hear. That's a sentiment I hear from a lot of people who work in the indie space. Is that you got to be able to wear a lot of different hats. I feel like when you exist in the the big studio triple A space, you can kind of specialize in something. Like you know, I I design hair, and you could just do that. You know, like that can be your full time job. But when you're yeah, when you're an indie developer, you got to be able to like cover a lot of different bases. Yeah. Uh, let, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the game you released, Quest of Dungeons. Uh, is this the the first game that you've released since you started your studio? It's not the first game that I released, but it's the first game with Upfall Studios. I formed a, a small studio with a couple of friends, we a three of us, and I released other games. So this wasn't the first one, but uh, I only created Upfall Studios after the release of Quest of Dungeons because... When it got to the point that, yeah, this is doing okay enough for me to go full-time on this. And why why did you decide to make a roguelike? Was there, was there something in the roguelike space that you thought you, you know, that you were trying to contribute to or say something new about? Like, why, why a roguelike for this one? I thought about, um, I, ha- I didn't, pl- I played a lot of RPGs when I was a kid, but I never played roguelikes. I, I got introduced to the genre like five, six years ago, more or less. And I, I really enjoyed it. But one of the things was sometimes some of the things were too complicated. Like I couldn't, inst- I could understand them, but it takes a lot of time to get into. Like there's a lot of depth. And I thought about doing something simpler. So I just like I don't know dumping down a little bit uh, some of the things to be it more uh, like I don't know a uh, roguelike in training wheels that still has all those features that the other rogues have but it's like I could give it I don't know to my mother and she could understand that was the thing because I was trying to make a game for initially for mobile like uh, you could play it on your smartphone so it has to be mm-hmm. a lot simpler than a traditional the hardcore rogues. So that was the was the thing that I thought maybe this can be different from the other ones. And have you found that 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 idea has connected with people? It has. I I think it has. It, it's it's a weird it's a weird maybe a weird point to be where I don't know a, a player that really likes the more hardcore games can find mine a bit shallow, like it doesn't have all those features. But for people that uh, never played one I, I i see a lot of players telling me i played your game and now i'm into rogue roguelikes because i wasn't scared of trying yours so i think i uh, that part it hit uh, i found uh, my audience so to speak for this that uh, for this part for this game it's neat to hear that you sort of had a, an idea for where it was going to fit into the market and then 
had the market respond positively to that. That's, I guess that's <laughs> as someone who's tried to make like movies in the past and had them sometimes not land the way I, <laughs> I had intended. It's, it's cool to hear stories from other people who do have their, their art find the audience they intended for it. Yeah. I, I think it's also, I try to put in a, a little bit of myself on in the game. So I think what stands it a, a bit more apart is that some people can tell, okay, so this was crafted. It's not as, even though I tried to mock the general, like Quest of Dungeons is supposed to be like a, a generic rogue with all those generic names with the generic story. I tried to put in a little bit of myself, like stuff that I like, like movies or joking about uh, horror mm-hmm. movies. So I think that usually helps a little bit any project well, yeah. to stand yeah. out. I mean, it certainly has a sense of humor to it. Like you can tell that it's certain ways you were making it the typical roguelike game. You know, the the classes are all your standard classes in that game. But then the way the characters talk to one another, they talk about, you know, like, you no, you, you go in the dungeon, you go do that on your, the, on your own. That stuff, you can definitely tell an artist's voice has been put in there. So that was, you know, that's really cool. Actually, the the reason I had invited you on the show is I had I had played your game, and it being a roguelike, I was you know I was trying to come up with like topics that we could discuss that related to roguelikes. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is the role that shops play in roguelikes. And I figured you'd be like the perfect person to have on the show to talk about something like that because I imagine you've probably spent a lot of time considering the you know the different aspects of of design that go into into shops and into the, you know, well, not just shops, but all the elements of, of roguelikes, shops among them. Typically, we kind of start out by going into a little bit of history, and, and I'll be excited to hear if you if you have any experience with these games. But I'm going to throw it over to Jared to lay a little history lesson on us. Jared, where did uh, shops and games originate from? One of the earliest examples was Beneath Apple Manor, which I think we talked about during our survival horror podcast. Nope. It, nope, it was uh, the episode with Mary Kish Me. when we talked about procedural generation. Right. Yes, Beneath Apple Manor, it was kind of preceded, it preceded Rogue. It came out for the Apple II computer in 1978. It was made by Don Worth, and the goal was to just get to the bottom of a 10-level dungeon. People familiar with modern roguelikes would be familiar with this formula, but at the start of each floor, there's a staircase. Players would ascend to return to town, and that's where you would trade in your treasure for better gear. While it's not really a store that you would see in a modern game, it was one of the earliest examples that we could find on, you know, just spending resources to get stuff back. Exactly. Yeah, and it's funny, as I do more and more research into some of these older games, I find more and more stuff. Like, it's not necessarily a 10-level dungeon, as we said in our procedural generation episode. It's more like every time you return to town, you kind of level up a little bit and then when you re-enter the dungeon it bases the difficulty of that floor on the the level of your character and you're attempting to get to the 10th most difficult floor of the dungeon i guess that'd be the first most difficult but you, you get what i'm saying like you're trying to get to the the 10th floor of difficulty in the dungeon to then complete it it's just uh, see, i having never played some of these games trying to do the research on them can be a little hard because you're just going off of like people who played it back in the in the 70s their <laughs> recountings of these things i'm sure there's this exists in some kind of like virtual environment that you could play it in you don't have to track down an apple II. i should probably do that considering that we end up talking about these games across multiple episodes yeah, at least dude we should all right one of these we days should we should try it. and maybe set up some sort of stream yeah where we go back and play like space war 
and Maze War and Beneath Apple Manor. That'd be great. Maybe maybe get a little bit of the uh, the next game you're going to mention in there as well. Yeah. Um. You know, it might surprise some people, but we occasionally get things wrong. This might be the first time we've ever said something that was incorrect. But when we uh, <laughs> yeah, mentioned right. Ultima in our character creator episode, uh, we claimed it was one of the first games to feature character customization. Uh, upon doing a little bit more research, we found out that it was a game titled Pettit Pettit Five. Uh, it was made for the Play-Doh system uh, by Rusty Rutherford in 1975. You had a character in that game where you could apply stats. So, you know, once again, I, we were kind of reaching for what defined a character creator, but you could definitely customize your your build in that game. Uh, and that pre- predated Ultima by six years. But the reason I bring up Ultima is because it was developed by Richard Garriott and Ken Arnold, also for the Apple II, and it was a top-down RPG, and the goal was to retrieve the gem of immortality. And uh, to do this, players went down in dungeons and traveled in outer space, and then between dungeons, you would visit towns, and you would get... There would be shops there. There'd be pubs, food, armories, all, all the stuff that you see in modern RPGs they were doing uh, in 19... What was this? 1981. Now, I have to ask, this is the, the standard question whenever we mention Ultima. David, did you ever play any of the Ultima games? No, I haven't. I haven't. It's a shame, but I haven't. No, that's that's all right. I'm, I'm curious. Like Every time we mention Ultima, I ask our guests if they've played it because they've made a bunch of them, but I have yet to find actually someone who's played any of them, which is weird because I know, I know there's probably tons and tons of people out there like, who which have, one do you start with trying- like I, I know that there's been so many iterations and people so many mods or people like well this is actually the definitive experience it's hard to it's hard to pick one yeah i think it's one of the most mentioned games in many many articles but most people haven't played it i think it, it i i kind of agree with that i i actually don't know anyone of my friends that played th- these games ultima but they've made they've made like a dozen of them. People are Someone's there's people out there, out there playing, playing them. them. I know. I'm I'm just curious who they are because I want to know what their experience is like with these games. I do feel like they probably appeal to a, a niche group of people, right? Like, yeah, you don't you don't hear Ultima brought up in like uh, you know everyday conversation, but there's there's a ton of the games out there, so people people are playing them somewhere. I just gotta I gotta track one down. Maybe that'll <laughs> maybe that'll be my goal for our next guest and find a topic where I can bring it up again. I think part of the reason, well, I mean, from my experience, a lot of people's first experiences with RPGs would probably be on the Nintendo. The Legend of Zelda came out in 1986, and I, I would I would guess if you're a gamer in your 30s, late 20s, and you played the NES, you would say my first RPG or first exposure was Legend of Zelda, at least most people in, uh, and in the U.S. Um, that game also had a shop. There were two kinds of shops that Link could visit to spend his rupees. And I think one of the key things between uh, Ultima and Legend of Zelda is that you're exchanging like a currency. It's not necessarily that you're trading or bartering other items for other things. You are you are actively acquiring some kind of currency that you could go and pay for items. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Legend of Zelda, you had a potion shop, and you could get two different types of potions, and then you could also get stuff like uh, the blue candle and the magic shield and the blue ring and all that kind of stuff. Now, David, were you a Legend of Zelda fan? I am, I am. I'm a okay, huge uh, Zelda fan. But my first one was on the Super Nintendo, the Link to the Past. It wasn't the original. Well, Link to the Past in, in some ways was kind of like a refinement of the uh, the Legend of Zelda formula that they had created. 
they had sort of abandoned that uh whatever the adventures of what was what was the name of the second oh the adventure Legend of zelda link? game no was adventure it adventures of link something, something like that, like yeah. that. yes they, they decided like oh that was kind of a mistake let's go back to uh what made legend of zelda great but yeah the, i think the shops in that game kind of in link to the past function very similarly to the ones in legend of zelda right like walk into the shop and you get the there's you know very classic items like the blue candle that yeah can only yeah. be can only be acquired at the shop uh i guess this is probably a good time for us to talk about how we sort of define shops right i think that there's a lot of things that shops and video games have in common that so, so when we talk about them you know i think the picture in a lot of people's heads is probably very similar so david when we're talking about a shop in a video game what what pops into your head first? Like how how do you imagine a shop in a video game when you're thinking about it? From uh well the the what you do is sell and buy stuff, but uh, it usually comes to mind the tradition like from those traditional RPGs like Final Fantasy where you come to a guy behind a counter, you, a, a manual pops pops up and you just sell and buy stuff. It's usually the main. It, it's usually the only function. Right. For those, I think that's it. Entities. I think, yeah, I think that's like a like the most concise definition you can come up with because I think that that like pretty much nails it, right? Like you, you hit all the elements. It's like a dude standing behind a desk. You walk up, it opens a menu, and you can buy and sell stuff, right? Yeah. Is there anything? Is there anything, Jared, that sort of like sticks out in your mind as maybe further helps define shops, or, or are we just moving forward with that? I think it's a good broad stroke to take approaching this. I think maybe we'll we'll sort of uh, dive into it a little bit more as we as we hit on some of the nuance here. But yeah, I think that covers it. All right. Well, so David, what was the first video game that you remember playing that included a shop that you could visit? I think it was probably uh, uh, Link to the Past. I feel like for a lot of people, Zelda would you know some a, a game in the Zelda franchise would probably be their first experience. I, I feel like if you were to just ask a hundred people. Probably fifty of them would mention a Zelda game somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, because I I didn't have a computer uh, from the I had a, a console, so I think that's probably the main thing, right? Is that consoles were affordable and being marketed for as you know, a video game platform versus you know oh, a lot yeah. of people didn't have a need for a home computer, so why would they have played something like Ultima? Yeah, we and we talked about this. We talk about this with Magnavox Odyssey, right? Like they had packed in decks of cards and monopoly money and all this stuff specifically so it could be marketed as a toy for children so yeah i wouldn't doubt if for a lot of people some console video game is their their gateway into a lot of the concepts that we end up talking about on this show because it's for kids that's the first thing you play on there's no way you're going to get on your your mom and dad's you know five hundred thousand dollar computer that they use exclusively to do taxes to play a video game no way <laughs> you're stalling yeah. those games and slowing the computer down again so that's, that's what i heard all throughout my childhood yep yep <laughs> so yeah i feel like a you know a console game and probably you know in this case zelda is is where a lot of people would have had their first experience jared how about you what was your first experience with a with a shop in a video game i had for the uh, super nintendo i had um super mario world which I remember specifically in Super Mario World 3. No, I'm sorry. It was Super Mario All-Stars was the game that I had. Um, and that had all, mm, had, yeah, had a great all of the games. Um, but anyways, yeah. Super Mario World 3 had well, the white toad houses that you would, you would find in the game after collecting so many coins. 
And once you unlocked those houses, you could go in and uh, there'd be Toad in there and you could trade your coins for a special item. And I think that's probably the earliest that I could think. Uh, you didn't really have a choice in the item, I don't think. So it's not a traditional shop, but it was the one that came to mind. Yeah, when I was thinking about this, I mean, I saw you put that in our show notes. And I, I didn't really consider it a shop because I think for me, yeah, that choice is an important part of it. So Super Mario, you know, Super Mario World 3, it didn't even like enter my mind when I was thinking about shops. For me, I mean, I was the... the I was never really big into RPGs. I was more into the, the action games, the shooters, you know, your your Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles games. Those are what I was into when I was younger. Uh, Final Fantasy VII was the game that got me into RPGs and thus was sort of my first experience dealing with, with shops. Uh, and we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but I, did, I don't think the shops were very good in Final Fantasy VII. It's one of, it's one of my favorite games of all time, but I... I I think it had a lot of issues. I think the the way that shops addressed progression in that game was a little bit was handled a little weakly. I'm gonna we'll jump say. the shark here and say I think shops are handled poorly in most games. What? <laughs> Spoiler, Spoiler alert for what we're gonna talk about. Spoiler alert. I don't. I I don't know if that's true. I think there's a lot of really great examples. Um, but but we'll we'll get into all of that. Are you, Jared? Are you playing any games right now that that include? shops as a mechanic in the I game? am yes I'm, I'm playing the the 2018 release of God of War or God of War 4 whatever you want to call it that game has a item shop there's a there's a there are dwarf brothers in the game that you run into and they will trade you the in-game currency for all kinds of stuff David are you playing uh, God of War like everyone else in the world except me <laughs> I am actually uh, I'm playing as uh, God of War as well so um, it's also the current game that I'm playing that has a shop. So in God of War, does a shop feel out of place? Because God of War is a franchise. I mean, this game is obviously quite a divergence from the old style of game that God of War used to be, sort of the hack and slash. Does it make sense in this world to have a shop? Because I feel like in gaming, there's been a trend over the last, I don't know, 20 years where like RPG elements have like slowly been creeping into games where they didn't used to exist, you know, like like straight up first person shooters now all have, you know, progression trees associated with them. But I feel like shops are another thing from RPGs that are now making their way into other games. And God of War, I think, is, you know, such a great example of that. It's a franchise where there, as far as I know, there was never really any like shop you went to. But does it make sense now to have a shop in that world? I guess I'll throw I'll throw it to you first, David. Does does the shop thematically click with what that game is doing? Yeah, I think so. I never played any of the previous games, so I can't compare. But I think it does. I think it fits uh, the the way it, it, it's uh, two brothers to uh, that are around the world. There's an explanation. I'm not gonna tell. I'm not gonna spoil. But there's an explanation why they're around, and you can see them where you see them. But I think it kind of fits. Uh, within the world itself something something it can be weird like how does the guy carry all this stuff or but that's it's game it's a game right but i think it, the overall i'm i'm not thinking i'm not finding finding it oh why is this here it should it doesn't fit a shop here not, not only do i think it fits thematically but it's convenient because there's there's not just one shop that you have to go back to uh, they they show up all over the place, so it it makes it like you're just on your way, and you're like, oh, I can just stop by the shop real quick and see if there's anything that I need, and that uh, I think yeah. is you know the fact that you don't have to like go and search it out. 
makes it work a lot better. And the reason I the reason I bring this up is because God of War used to be about like action, action, action. Like if you're you know if you're not hacking and slashing something, if you're not hacking, you're slashing. Yeah. <laughs> then uh, then you know you're watching a cutscene of Kratos just banging it out with some women. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like like there's God of War is all about that like constant amped up violence and aggression and action and all those things are just like over the top and to now include a shop in the game seems like they're like an attempt to add moments of respite moments of slower pace to the game and i'm curious you know i i don't know david you said you you hadn't played any of the previous god of war games jared did you like does it does this game feel like a god of war game or does do the shops make it feel like a different kind of game that they called god of war uh, I have not played the previous God of War games, but I am very familiar with it. I've done a lot of uh, research because of uh, work. I've, I've put together videos that have featured the God of War series. And, and obviously, like everyone, as most people know, like the newest God of War is a huge departure from what... It's, it's basically a, a reboot, I guess, even though in the timeline of things, it's, uh, it's still going consecutively. But uh, they definitely took a different approach for it, and I, it works out really well. I had no interest in the series before this game. So um, I, I don't know. I, it's, it, it, is, it is different in that way, but I think definitely for the better. And I, I think oh, if you good. are a fan of the previous games, you'll still like this game. It's, it's, it is slower paced, but it definitely... I would say the older God of War games probably were... That formula was getting a bit dated. So now this feels like a modern game, and I don't think that if you were a huge fan of the God of War games in the past, that this one would turn you off just because the pacing is a little different. Well, let's, I mean, before we, I, I think we all, well, at least Jared and I do, because we're negative Nancys, but <laughs> we, we might have some grievances with shops. But before we get into the, any of that, David, are, is there an example of a shop in a video game that that was implemented well, that, that had uh, was a good example of how shops can be additive to the experience of a game? The, the one that always comes to my mind is from Resident Evil 4. Uh, oh yeah, the guy with his, the trench coat guy, right? Yeah, the trench because it it adds to the game in many ways. It's not just the shop buy stuff and sell stuff, but there's some. I want to know who that guy is, right? Until today, we have no idea what's his backstory, and I think it adds uh, those uh, slow based uh, because it's a more action based game than the previous ones, and you have that safe area where the where the shopkeeper is. You can also upgrade everything there. So I think it's well implemented. It, it wasn't just a UI pops up from a guy behind the counter, right? I was actually excited to find him. It was a, a checkpoint that it was always interesting to see what he had. And also because we could uh, sell all those things, all those uh, treasures that we found were only meaningful when we got to him. So they were... They didn't mean anything until we find him, and then we could trade for something. That's the thing that I think that worked well on that game. Well, and you bring up a really good point of like a shopkeeper who has character, who who adds more than just like the items he sells to the game, but adds some component of story or mystery to the game. Um, that makes me think of in Destiny. There's the character Zer who shows up. Uh, just on the weekends, you know, he just appears somewhere in the world and he carries with them highly desirable items. 
but Zer himself is cool. He's got a cool design. You know, he's got the like weird sort of ghost-like tentacles coming out of his face, and his all of his dialogue is very cryptic, and it refers to the the nine who are this like or you know this organization of beings that the game doesn't really you know spend too much effort in explaining but then it it adds that like intrigue so you're always excited to you know for the weekends because Zer shows up and you get to go uh, browse his wares and he is adding something uh, on a story level to the game that doesn't exist when you just go to you know generic shopkeeper one and buy a potion you know there's there's something special about him in that world uh jared what you know what 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 examples of good shops spring to your mind when you're thinking of of something in a game Uh, i'm just gonna keep talking about god of war man because i i you will not get me to say a bad thing about that game i'm I'm sure that it exists i haven't (laughs) finished it yet but uh I, i just i'm having such a good time with it i i think that the thing that I like about God of Wars, I, I think we also have to talk about economy in games, uh, because in God of War, you you have uh, basically two types of resources. You have XP, which you just get from killing things and completing quests, and then you have a currency called Hack Silver. And a lot of the times, you have to spend both to get new skills and abilities. But currency it doesn't come cheap. It's it's some of the quests are very difficult. And you're constantly having to make decisions because you don't have enough of it. And I, I think that that's important in video games too, is that making m- making the currency that you're trading into the shops be valuable enough where you're not just like, well, I could just buy everything if I really wanted to. Um, and so I really like that. I like having to make tough decisions on how I want to progress through the game. Uh, or if I want to get like the next coolest thing, I'm going to have to do a couple more side quests to to get more of that currency. And that makes me that makes me think of the metro games, right? Where your currency is also your bullets. Right. Yeah, yeah. You'd have like your your crappy bullets and then you would have like the the pre-war bullets which could also be used as bullets, but they were more valuable to as, as a like a trading currency. Yeah. I you bring up a very good point because I don't know if you guys do this, but a lot of times I will finish an RPG with just an ungodly amount of money leftover that I didn't spend on anything and it's because like at a certain point the you know the shops the shops aren't selling anything really worth buying or your <laughs> the shops aren't like useful enough to even bother visiting whatever it is and I just end up like finishing a game with a ton of money and the economy of the game goes out the window in that case do you guys do you guys ever find that you you play games that way or is it just me am I just like really stingy with my in-game currency Oh, no, yeah. yeah, that happens to me a lot. Yeah, I definitely do that. I mean, I'm like, I save, they give me currency. I should probably save it for something cool. In, in Zelda Breath of the Wild, I they give you cool stuff to spend your money on. So I, they kind of justify it. it my my gameplay style of hoarding hoarding money is, is justified in a game like that where I'm like, ooh, I can upgrade my house. I can I can do really cool things if I save up a bunch of money. Or I could, you know refill some hearts or you know spend money on on, on consumable things but yeah I'm, I'm with you on that it's if there's not a good reason to spend the money and you just have all of it at the end then why was it even in the game and this gets into i think maybe like video game balance discussion because when i was thinking about shops in games and again the reason david i i wanted to have you on the show to, to talk about this was i i thought of a game like the binding of isaac which people who've listened to this show know is one of my favorite games in that game, the shop is like mission critical sometimes. Like the, the, the shop sells items that are absolutely necessary to beat that game at, at times. 
And it's because a lot of the resources in that game are very scarce. The game it withholds a lot of things from you, things like health or items like bombs or keys that you need to um, progress through the game, or even things like soul hearts to protect you know your deal with the devil chance whenever you're on a whatever it is, like an even-numbered floor. These are advantages that the shop provides, and it feels almost mandatory sometimes that you visit it, where when I play a game like, I don't know, like Monster Hunter, I, I don't think I've ever visited the shop to buy anything except for trap tools. The dude, the dude in Monster Hunter sells hundreds of items. I just, I've never bought anything from him except for the trap tool. They might as well just call him the trap tool guy. Because <laughs> that's the only thing that you can't get like sort of elsewhere in that game. And, and in that game, I'm just sitting on a huge stockpile of money. So I think scarcity in these games, you know, ties right into what you were talking about, Jared, with the, the way the economy handles. When you were designing Quest of Dungeons, David, did this, you know, did scarcity come into your mind when you were designing your shop for that game? Like, how did you pick uh, like the prices for the items that the, the shopkeeper sells in that one? Yeah, I thought about it a lot, mostly because there's one game that comes to mind, usually, for example, Diablo 3. The shop is a mixed bag. And that's mostly because you can find anything in uh, every, uh, for free, right? You can get most of the better weapons by killing monsters. So for Quest of Dungeons, that was one of the things that I was worried because I, I wanted a shop but I didn't want it to feel meaningless, like, like you said, tons of items that no one gets, no one wants or don't need to. So I ended up trying to make it so that health potions and mana, po- like the the crucial elements, are more uh, rare around the world. So usually, people the best way to find a health potion is from buying it, but not weapons. So it's a it's a trade-off so you can still find everything but the the thing that gets you to live to another fight are health potions usually so that's the one thing that you need to stock up on the the shopkeeper i don't know why i just this just came to my mind but my first playthrough of uh dark souls the first one um when i got to the first bonfire i accidentally killed the npc that allowed you to upgrade your weapons and so i got like halfway through that game not knowing that there was an upgrade system i don't, I don't know if, how that's relevant but it just reminded me of that it was it was like one of the shopkeepers and i like i was like a traumatic experience you wanted to share am I getting my ass kicked like i accidentally attacked her and so she had started attacking me i was like well i have to kill her now and then i just proceeded along the game as normal uh so everyone yeah. always tries to kill the shopkeepers all the yeah. time i get i get emails this is true i get i get emails sometimes of people telling me i killed all shopkeepers in quest of dungeons i'm like why why did you do that and they, they're happy they're like i killed every single one i could find please tell me there's a, an achievement for that no there <laughs> isn't i never thought about it to be honest i was like yeah people are gonna buy stuff and sell it no i'm gonna kill every everyone that's funny because in uh, Fallout 4, I definitely didn't have uh, enough money or something to buy some powered armor. It was the first time I saw like like upgraded powered armor, and I was uh, I definitely killed the shopkeeper because he had a bunch of stuff behind the counter, and I snuck in there and stole all his stuff. Uh, that's fun if you if you can actually you know kill the shopkeeper and take their stuff, but you don't see that in a lot yeah. of games. 
You don't. But when when you have, it's more fun when there's a there's danger to trying to kill them or they. There are games where they turn invincible or super strong, and it's a risk to try try to steal from them. Yeah, there's a bunch of people around. It's like, how do I make this look like an accident? And then I just went into stealth mode and, and murdered him in one shot. And no one noticed and, or said anything for the rest of the game, even though his body was just there forever. <laughs> it's Spelunky as a great is a great example of like a of a memorable shopkeeper as well. Because whenever you like piss him off, he goes crazy. Does he? Yeah. I have not played that game. Yeah. You, you haven't played Spelunky? No. You should definitely just, get on I, it. It's- so here's the thing. I'm terrible at all of those types of games. I, I haven't played Quest of Dungeons yet, but I, I do appreciate that you that you kind of took it to its basics. Um, and I'm looking for some games to play on my Switch. So I might have to pick that up. And uh, maybe that will be my, my gateway roguelike. Yeah, Spelunky, when you try to fight the shopkeeper, he just he jumps all over the place and he has a shotgun, which just will annihilate you when you get hit by it it's a scary experience what happens like when you sometimes kill you'll exit yeah you, know, you get a shotgun oh. and i think you, you can take the items from the shop for free after that i believe it's been a little bit since i've played spelunky but like <laughs> sometimes you'll accidentally agitate the shopkeeper and that's a terrifying <laughs> experience also yeah one of the other things that i think that make a shop really good is when it ties directly into some kind of mechanic that is central to the game and what I mean by that, like, I'll give an example. I, I think of a game like Borderlands, where like the point, one of the, I mean, one of the main draws of Borderlands is that all of the weapons are sort of randomly generated. 17 billion guns. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And the shops are sort of an extension of that. And in, in that game, there's also vending machines. There's a lot of different shops that you can visit. And whenever I load up a new game of borderlands you know whenever i load into it the first thing i do is check every single shop because since everything's randomized there's no guarantee that you're going to find anything good and usually they were like on a timer too weren't they like when it would like refresh yeah yep at least in borderlands 2 that's the one i have the most experience with recently but that you know in that way the shop is sort of feeding into what the draw of that game is so you know it was always cool to go check the shops at least for me you know it felt rewarding to check the shops and then that one time you find a really cool deal on a good gun that you you know you didn't have before that feels really gratifying again because it's feeding into directly one of the main draws of that game i don't know do you guys do you guys have any examples of other shops and games that that do that that are central to what the game is attempting to do and I'll, I'll throw it to you david is does anything spring to your mind for i'm not for sure if this fits if this fits well but uh for example uh splatoon because the shops are about to buy uh, are all about buying you have the weapons but uh, mostly the uh, armor so because you have those slots that you can um for extra speed or extra shield or uh more ink and there's, you really need, especially in multiplayer, it really matters what you get and what you buy. And, and it's a matter of uh, leveling up and going to the shop and getting a good deal. But re- the interesting thing is that as you play with that uh, armor, the way it gets new uh, features is by leveling up. And it's randomized. So if you get something that you don't like, like, I, I don't know, double shield is, is probably good, but I don't know, double speed, you don't need double speed. And you can sell that and buy something else or trade it. So it's really co- uh, fundamental to the gameplay itself to 
get to the shops and trade stuff and also visually so it impacts your character like the the avatar it's mm. it, you have go- goggles and you have different cool t-shirts so it's it, sometimes you want to look good but it doesn't is is not exactly as powerful as something else i don't know it's a trade-off that you can make oh no I, I i experience that in monster hunter all the time where i'm like i could equip this thing it's way better but Kind of makes me look like a tool, so I'm going to keep wearing what I got on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what is the purpose of the vendor that is next to the, the blacksmith in Monster Hunter World? Because I, she's just like, I have new stuff in stock, and I'm like, but why? Like, I'm going to make something out of this dinosaur head after I kill, like, six more of them. I, I, I think she exclusively exists so that if you don't want to craft a base level item, you can just purchase it from her with the currency. But I agree, she exists almost exclusively to just kind of give you quests and occasionally annoy you with with vapid dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting uh, to talk about shops in a multiplayer setting. When, when you were talking about it in Splatoon, it made me think of how they handled it in uh, Steve and I's favorite MOBA that came out years ago, Super Monday Night Combat. They had a thing, uh, so that was a free-to-play game, and it was kind of like the League formula where you could play certain characters for free or you could pay real money to uh, buy the characters that were unlocked all the time. But there was a whole other mechanic where you would equip, uh, what did they call them in that game? They were like cards or something? And they would give you small uh, like stat bonuses. I cannot remember. Like 10% bonus to speed or 10%. You were after bacons. Yeah, and like you, would, you, would, you had like four slots, and you would try to just... Uh, have the build of different stats you know each card had different stats uh and try to make the one that was best and i i don't remember could you buy those with real money was that sort of a pay to win thing yes um yes they were awarded randomly in that game okay but then you could trade in the steam like (laughs) through steam for you know items that other people had um when I was hooked on that game, I definitely was buying like indie games to trade with people for their uh, for their their sweet Super Monday Night Combat items. I didn't have a lot of it, but I definitely traded all my Team Fortress cosmetics uh, to to buy stuff for Super Monday Night Combat. It was uh, a problem game in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> it was, but yeah, that was an well, example well, of a shop. I think that they had like really harsh implications to the actual gameplay and made you better or worse depending on what you were trying to do or who you were up against. It did, yeah, and and maybe we can talk about because um, I, I think a lot of that existed maybe outside of the game, some of that that trading and buying and stuff. But let, let's talk a little bit about World of Warcraft, a game that has shops but also has an auction house, you know, a way to buy and and sell items with other players in world of warcraft i found the the actual shops the npc shops to be quite useless in that game at least you know kind of once you approach the end game of it um, yeah you could like buy stuff if you're like in the early levels of crafting i think you could buy some resources yeah. from the shopkeepers but then it all goes to the auction house where you're you're trading with you know, other, other players in the world. And then that gets into like really sketchy territory with, you know, currency sellers and people trying to hack accounts, because I feel like once you can start trading with other people in the world, it opens up these other like real world implications that can get dangerous. I'm dangerous might not be the right word, but can get, 
can approach that territory for sure. I don't think that you could. There's any way in World of Warcraft outside of like selling gold through a third party website. I don't think that. Well, I guess. I guess you would sell things on the auction house for gold, and then you would go on a third party website and and sell that for real money. Well, since we're already kind of going down this road a little bit. Are there any examples of shops and games that maybe detracted a little bit from the, the experience of playing the game? Is there anything you could think of that um, because they had a shop actually made the game a little worse? So I'm also playing through Nino Kuni 2, and I, I, I'm noticing this a lot in Japanese games. J- Japan has come back in a big way this last couple of years. They've, they've, made, they've released a lot of great games. Uh, so I started to get back into them. I mean, I was I was huge into JRPGs growing up, uh, and so you know when Nino Kuni Two came out, I was excited to get that. Uh, they they still design their games in a very unique way, and 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 specifically to the aspect of shops in that game. There's there's shops in every single city, except I go to them and they're all pretty much selling the same things. The armor selling like the same like ten. I'm not that far into it, so maybe this will change. But like they send they sell like the most base equipment, but you're getting better equipment regularly out in the field when you do, you know, do combat and stuff as a reward. And they, you know, they put them on the mini map. So I just, I don't understand what the purpose of it is. Like I, I, I check it because I keep hoping they'll be useful, but it just seems like one of those like check boxes that they're like, well, it's an RPG. Let's put some shops around town. I think of a game like Final Fantasy seven, one of my first experiences with shops. And in that game, I, there's a lot of items that I just straight up never really bought potions phoenix down stuff like that that just drop in the world i don't understand why you have a shop that then sells that stuff that never gets purchased and the other thing that that game did was they put things like weapons and armor that were sort of appropriate for where you know your level in that game you'd get to a new city and the first thing i would do is check all the shops because i knew that they were going to have whatever the next little piece of armor or weapons that i i needed from that and to me, that feels very artificial. Like it doesn't feel organic in that world. So it kind of, in a way, detracts from that experience. Honestly, like if if you're thinking about Final Fantasy VII, you start that game in the most technologically advanced city in the world, Midgard. <laughs> and shouldn't they, in their shops, just already have all of the the greatest weapons and armor available for everybody? Except they don't, because it's the start of a video game, so all they have is sort of the basic, base-level stuff. And it's weird that, like, later, when you approach a, a rural town in the middle of nowhere, and you check their shop, that this is the shop that has better gear. And then, it doesn't matter what the next town is, they'll have slightly better gear. And it, it becomes, like... It, it feels very artificial. Like it doesn't feel like an organic way to progress your character, but that's the way the shops are utilized in that game. And it, it's, it's almost mandatory that you visit them because sometimes they have the next, you know, the next sword that you need. But um, I wonder where I, that I came from. That because kind of problematic. You, you definitely see that in a lot of like these earlier games, like final fantasy seven and, and mm-hmm. all the previous final fantasies for that matter had, had similar, similar setups. From the limited amount of D&D that I've played, at least the version I think I've been playing 5th edition, something like that, the the, the DM kind of decides what's, what gets put in each shop, but for the most part, like it's stuff that you can't really get out in the world. Like it, you're, you're very rarely going to find enough healing items unless you know you have someone who's dedicated to that. So it, if you think about like some of the origins of RPGs, 
I don't think D&D just had a bunch of useless crap. So I don't know where this kind of came from. Like why why they decided to start that way. And I feel like that changes DM to DM. Like some DMs might actually go like, no, you're in a, you know, you're in a town in a rural area. So don't expect to find any, you know, great weapons and armor here. When I played D&D most recently, it was kind of this Final Fantasy VII method where every town you entered, they had gear that was appropriate for your level. Mm, So it's just, it's different philosophies. I mean, I I feel like it is just different design philosophies. Um, Yeah, but I I think throughout most of Final Fantasy, they they have that problem. I I played the Final Fantasy XV and going to the shops, even because a lot of uh, quests are about getting something, like buying something from a specific shop, it's really boring to do those. Like finding a certain guy that sells this and they have tons of items that you don't even care or want to or, or need to get only for that quest. I they usually have I think it's they introduce some some games introduce a quest that makes you go to a shop just to make sure that you remember, oh, <laughs> you should you should use them once in a while. There's usually mm-hmm. a quest about using a shop, like getting that you can't progress unless you get something from there. Like just to make sure that you remember, oh, here's uh, something that you should use. Yeah, definitely. And Nino Kuni too, actually, one of the last things that I did was I, I did a quest for a shopkeeper. He was like, here, go deliver all these packages to people around town real quick. And I was like, oh, cool. Maybe you'll you'll trade me something cool. If I'm done. Nope. He just lets me trade the same crap that everybody else has. I was like, all right, well, that that seemed like a waste of time. So this kind of gets into something else I wanted to talk about with shops is do shops reveal sort of shortcomings in game design? Does it make sense that in every single town you go into, a shopkeeper will just buy all of your junk from you? And and in some games, almost to like an infinite degree, like they will just buy everything that you have and there seems to be no limit to their money. Does that call attention to the gaminess of the way shops are designed in games at least typically i think in a lot of instances it's it is a checkbox people are like well this seems like a game that should have shops in it and they don't really spend a whole lot of time thinking about what it means um it's just there you know if you want to offload some stuff in your limited inventory you can do that at any shop um i think that might be just a way to you know recycle some of the, the trash items that you find out in the world um divinity original sin 2 you can literally trade with every single NPC in that game. Uh, and you can do it with gold. You can buy things with gold. Or you can trade item to item, and each item has a value. Uh, people who are, like, if you try to sell a spell book to a ra- random villager, they will buy it from you, but only for a couple of gold. But if you go to someone who knows the value of that, they'll give you a lot more Uh, Every NPC you have a relationship rating with. Uh, It's not really super complex. It's just what how you're standing in their faction, basically. And if that improves, they'll give you better deals. They'll they'll buy stuff from you for a better price. And that I thought was really cool. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really immersive. It's like, well, I have like all these extra spell books. I'm never I'm never going to use. I I could sell them here, but I should probably just go back into town to sell them to you know that 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 vendor because they will buy them for more and they they know that they're worth. So I think that's a good example of that, but more often than not, they don't. Games don't do that. And here's another thing: like a while back, we referenced an article written by Ian Bogost. Um, I think it was called "Games Are Better Without Stories," something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yep. I, I apologize for not remembering it, 
in that game or in that article, he had mentioned that um, as we, you know, as we push towards more realism in games, that it starts to reveal some of the, uh, again, the, like shortcomings in design. I think he specifically called towns and games like Potemkin villages. This idea of like they they exist only to you know, like in service of the player and they they don't have any sort of life outside of when the player is in that town and we see that reflected in like vendors who never leave their shop they're just always behind their desk and again kind of like what i was saying like you can sell them junk in some cases an unlimited amount of junk and they'll just keep paying you and paying you for it um david as someone who who actually makes games is this something that you th- think about is this something that creeps into your mind when you're designing uh you know when you designed your shop of like what is my shopkeeper doing here like what's my shopkeeper's story why does he exist in this world there's two perspectives in in my opinion there's the practical one and the one that is this something that could happen like for example why is he here why like why is this guy here like 24 7 for example on a, if the game if a game has a, a day cycle it's to help the player because it's frustrating if you i don't know i can't remember i, I know i played an rpg that had a, a a day night cycle and if you somehow try to go to a shop during night time you have to wait and while that's uh realistic it's not fun for me personally having to wait for morning to get to the shop. So there, there, it really depends on the goal and what the the designer wants to do. And uh, because if, if it's a more realistic thing, like there's, uh, I don't know, I, I think uh, GTA has that, right? Uh, shops are like stores are closed during night. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, so that's realistic. Uh, but f- on the other hand, it's not as practical from a, 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 a gameplay point of view where you just want to sell stuff. You have to wait. I remember the only game I think I think Final Fantasy fifteen does this as well, and I remember it was frustrating. I have to wait. Well, for and like this in, G- in GTA, you would show up at night, and it's like, nope, come back between these hours. That's when they're open, and there's nothing else that you could do. Whereas like a game like uh, Skyrim or most Bethesda games, for that matter, you could come back at night and rob the place blind if you wanted to and that 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 makes it cool that makes it worthwhile but just closing shops down at night that there's no other reason it's just inconvenient i don't i don't see the point exactly but on the other hand it's not something that it's not the life right like you mentioned before for why why are they here 24 7 they shouldn't be they should have a life but because it's a game sometimes it's not as fun especially rpgs where you play 100 hours or so after 20 hours you don't care about you just want to sell your stuff or buy something (laughs) you don't care where's the dude where is he but there are a lot of games that implement that i think animal crossing has that as well you have that but on animal crossing it kind of fits better the whole team theme of the game where you don't really because there's a lot of more stuff it's not just the shops it's mostly everything it's a live world so you you kind of Okay, this this makes sense. On games that only the shops are closed during night, like uh, it, it's kind of boring. It's why it, there's no there's no explanation other than making it real. It's not fun uh, unless the the whole game, the whole ecosystem of the game, 
goes around that. Like I remembered Animal Crossing for some reason. One game that does it kind of uh, has an interesting loop with that is uh, Stardew Valley. Uh, in that game, you inherit a farm, and, and the whole game is to basically like raise this farm and make start profiting and, and selling your stuff. Uh, and that game has a town that you can walk to that has you know each shop has its own hours. Uh, you know they're, they're open during the day for the most part, but everything's closed down at night because everybody's sleeping. Well, you sh- you also have a like a tiredness meter in that game, and if it runs all the way down, you'll fall asleep where you stand, and you know, there's a penalty to that. You'll you'll end up respawning in your house the next day. But there's other stuff to do at night. You know, if if you have um, enough energy, you go into the the mines and you do. You know, there's combat and you try to get more resources that you can use or later sell in the daytime. So it's like if you're not, if you have stuff to sell, you can just wait till morning because at night you want to be doing something else. And you know, it's just a constant like loop of things to do that kind of you get into like a good uh, a good rhythm with that. Versus you know, GTA Five, like oh, I want to buy. I just got. I want to buy some new cool stuff. Uh, I got to wait till it opens in the morning for no particular reason. Yeah, especially if uh, you can interact with, uh, let's say, a shopkeeper and during night it's closed, but you can find him at a bar. For example, you go into the bar, bars are usually open more hours. So, and you find a guy there, you can talk to him, something else. Uh, yeah, that, again, cool. I'm mentioning Animal Crossing because the, the whole game is about interactions and talking to the neighbors and if some if some guy isn't uh, at, a, at the store he's probably around the world and that's why the game feels more alive and you don't, you don't mind the the store being closed because you can find the shopkeeper not selling obviously but you can t- mm-hmm. interact with him in a different way so that adds up to the game and that, that kind of design is very exciting to me. I think they just recently announced that the new Red Dead Redemption, all of the NPCs in that game are going to have their own lives sort of outside of the thing that you typically see them doing. So there's not just going to be sort of like randomly generated NPCs. Everyone you encounter in that world has a life, has, you know, sort of a, a cycle that they go through <laughs> that, that you can interact with and be, and you can disrupt it in different ways. To me, that's really exciting because I think, for the most part, you know, when I when I think back to my first experience with shops way back in Final Fantasy VII, or you know, even going back beyond that, Legend of Zelda, shops for the most part haven't really changed a whole lot in meaningful ways. Like a shop functions almost identically today to the way it used to, and I think there, you know, there's like slight sort of like philosophy design things that can you know that are different between games but it's still more or less you walk up to a shopkeeper you open up a menu you trade items with you know you buy and sell stuff and that's it and it's been the same for 30 years so i think you know one of the thing that excites me are these are things like making shops more living dynamic things and not just these i don't know not just a like a copy and paste design thing that just gets put into every single game because that's that's just the way it is does that make sense am i yeah, am yeah. I, no totally I, no, I, no. sometimes i start sometimes especially doing this podcast I, I start to talk and then i can't tell if i'm making any sense <laughs> <laughs> and then i'm like why do i have why did who put this microphone in front of me why am i doing that's this? the magic of doing this and not being able to see anyone's face you're like is anyone even listening to this what i'm saying like, this matter <laughs> <laughs> i how about indie games? Have indie games changed the way that we view shops? I, I think there have been a few that have come out over the last couple of years 
that indie games in general, I think, are the, the really good ones are about reevaluating the way that we look at at game design. David, are there any games that you looked at when you were designing Quest of Dungeons that you maybe took inspiration from or maybe gave you a different perspective on the way that you were designing specifically shops in your game? Probably not indie games because you mentioned indie games. I can't remember of a specific indie game. Well, I I got inspiration from a lot of indie games, but not exactly for the shop itself. It was mostly RPGs, AAA games. Uh, but we already mentioned at least two games uh, that uh, have an interesting twist on the shops. Uh, Spelunky and you mentioned Stardew Valley. I, I think we only now see more uh, in the indie space, more games uh, with interesting twists on the, the shops. Like breaking out of the RPG kind of st- kind of interface and shops. Yeah, there, there was a game that came out a few years ago that, that interested me, a game called Cart Life, that was about, essentially, you play as the NPC who, who manages a shop. And there, I think there's, there's a couple of different characters you could play as. They each kind of have their own story that goes along with them. But essentially, what you're doing is you're, you're running like a magazine cart or a little coffee cart on the streets of a city. And the game has you do really silly stuff like... Uh, like alphabetized magazines through different mechanics. You know, it has you do this stuff, but it starts to make, at least for me personally, started to make me think about shopkeepers in games. Like what is, what is the shopkeeper in a game's life like outside of when you walk up to them and talk to them, you know, and sell them your junk? What is it like to, to be that shopkeeper? And I think the game sort of revels in being mundane because sort of that's the way shopkeepers are typically portrayed in games. And and each character has their own life that I guess in a mundane way is exciting if that makes any, if that makes any sense like they have things that they're trying to accomplish in their lives but it it it's all sort of goes back to this idea of the shopkeeper in the traditional game is a boring character. It all is sort of like predicated on that idea about the way that we approach game design from a you know traditional sense jared is there anything that pops to your mind that sort of made you makes you evaluate the way that shops are handled in games that maybe came out of the indie space i'm trying to think of the game name now it's it's the game where you like when you die you respawn as someone else in the family uh was it rogue legacy i think rogue legacy yes rogue Rogue Legacy. Yeah, and and that way, uh, you could like buy things um, between runs, and like you would you would acquire like a stash of treasure, and uh, you you could buy things that would make your your next guy a little bit stronger each time, and you get a little bit further. And that was kind of the loop of that game. I thought that was kind of cool. I liked I liked the idea of like handing down um, the treasure that you've earned throughout the, the generations of that game. Enter the Gungeon, you know, that's another roguelike kind of a bullet hell shooter game, similar to Binding of Isaac, in a lot of ways. They had they had little vendors in that game where you would you you would encounter them randomly. I'm pretty sure that they would show up in random spots and uh, you know present you with different guns. It, it, pretty much like what you'd expect for something like kind of like Spelunky and stuff like that. But Enter the Gungeon's cool because that game, and it's not necessarily just the vendors, but it makes you really consider the trade offs for a lot of things. There's ways that you can sort of 
uh, curse yourself to get certain advantages in that game. And that stuff's all exciting where it's not just necessarily about the money that you have to spend, but what else, you know, what other things can contribute to the gameplay that, that come out of that shop area that, that was really neat in that game specifically. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've done a, a pretty decent job of, of covering everything that, that shops have to offer in games. I guess we can kind of wrap this up. David, what what would you like to see in the future of games? Like, how can the industry improve in the way that they implement shops in in design? I think mostly about making uh, the characters, making them more meaningful for the story or the gameplay. Whatever the game is more driven, if it's a more story driven or more gameplay like mechanics, uh, but making making it feel part of the world. And usually, I. This is just one uh, of the, the possibilities that I've seen work, and, and we mentioned this, is maybe being the same guy that somehow... It, it seems silly, but it kind of works because you you get a connection with the... You will immediately know who the character is. It's not just some random, random dude behind the counter. Because otherwise, the only way that you can recognize the character if it's inside a shop with a sign or some other uh, characteristic that you know, okay, this is a different character, but I know it's a shop because it has a sign. If it's a character that you already you were already introduced to, it's immediately, and you get that excitement, oh, let me see what he ha- has this time, because it's the same character, but on a mm-hmm. different place. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's great. You know, the, the idea of world building through the shop, I think... Is a is a very important function of the shops that maybe more than anything else gets overlooked. The the shop is a opportunity to communicate something about your world, and when all all a shopkeeper is is essentially like a robot with a a menu to interact with, it it almost kind of feels like a missed opportunity to to say something to express something about your game in that moment. Uh, Jared, what about you? What can uh, what can the industry do to improve on the way it uses shops and games? I would like to see shops that have more like gameplay implications. Uh, God of War, bring it up a lot because it's it's all the all the buzz right now. But a lot of the things because you Sony, get that, because Sony's paying you to it, it, hype it up. I am, <laughs> yep, I'm, you expose the shill. Um, it it's you know you get items that will give you. Like you press this button combo, and now you can do a whole new thing, and it it matters. You know, it's, it changes the way that you play. You end up going into combat. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of like a game where a lot of games have like traveling vendors, tra- traveling shops, and often you run into them and they're selling the same stuff that all the other shops are. And it's like I don't need any mm-hmm. of this, and I guess maybe they just exist so I can sell some, offload some of the the trash items that I picked up along the way. I don't find that rewarding, really. I end up just hoarding that stuff if I can because I don't really have any other reason to, to spend money. And that, that makes me think of something else I, I wanted to talk about and did get to earlier, yeah. which is I like the idea of, of shops being sort of unique to a part of the world. And this kind of goes to what uh, David was just saying. Is I, I like the idea of like, oh, if I travel to the north, that's where I can get the cold weather gear. Or if I you know, travel to uh, the mines, that's where I can get the hardy dwarf gear that provides a lot of defense, but uh, you know, is, is heavier and makes me slower. And if I go visit the elves, that's where I can get the, the light army. Like, that kind of stuff, you know, again, goes into the world building stuff, but excites me. I wanted to bring it up earlier and I just forgot, but 
Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Jared. No, no worries. And I think scarcity also works into this a little bit, where if I have to make you know tough decisions on the things that I need, um, rare items that you can find out in the world, but you end up needing them so often, like potions and stuff. Um, but if you know you encounter a shopkeeper, you can you can give away some of your 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 hard-earned resources to uh, you know and, and make that trade-off. I think that that's that's good game design that that, that leaves me with a purpose of of using that. I just recently finished my uh, the camp. <laughs> it only took me two years and about ninety hours, but I finished a campaign of XCOM two. And um, <laughs> while, while there's not necessarily a traditional shop in that game, you do have to make choices on like what kind of stuff you're researching and what kind of items you want to build. And you're exchanging um, like alien alloys that you pick up from battles and stuff like that, and that, that goes into that stuff. Uh, and that directly translates into having cooler looking stuff in the game. Uh, better weapons, more toys to play with, and that 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 left me with like that was a really like good carrot on the stick to make me keep going, so I could get new stuff uh, and and more of that. I'd like to see. I agree. I think scarcity is maybe the most important thing from a gameplay standpoint that the the shop can interact with. You know, world building is nice, and that that feeds into the story of of everything. But for to make a shop important to gameplay i think scarcity is is hugely important how how would you like to see it improve though one of the things i would like to see the industry improve on is shops being relevant to the experience of the game i talked about a little bit with borderlands but i'll I'll throw out another example of grand theft auto 5 where the point of grand theft auto is to get cars and to expand your empire so the 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 shops in that game allow you to do things like Tune up your cars, modify it, you know, get more property, um, get, you know, better, better weapons to cause mayhem in that game. Like the shops directly tie into what the point of that game is. And there's also like a huge scale for what you can buy, right? Like you can, you, you've got a ton of money in that game. You can buy a $4 shirt or you can buy a hundred thousand dollar car and I think that that in that game specifically, it's really cool that you're getting large sums of money, but there's something to do with that money that you're having to like, do I want to buy that car? Do I want to save that money to buy a helicopter? Do I want to, do I want to get a couple of cars? You know, so there's, it's all a balance thing. It really is a a balance thing in these, in these games. Well, if, uh, if we got to everything, I guess we can move along to our email section. If you have any questions or comments about shops and games or any of our previous topics, you can always send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Jared, what are you buying? No, what are, we, what are people saying? What are people uh, got saying about us? Feedback from Chester Copperbot on Facebook. He says, in regards to seasonal events, I'm all for seasonal events, even if they create a ludonarrative dissonance. Uh, it's like a fresh take on a game with familiar characters. Even though I'm a Scrooge, I'm even okay with the monetization of the seasonal events because it costs a fair amount of money to produce some of these events. Uh, I'd love to see more diversity in holiday events that game companies celebrate, but I'm concerned that uninformed enthusiasm might lead to unintentional offense to some groups, possibly even claims of cultural appropriation. Thoughts? Yeah, it's I I when I was putting together our notes for that show, for our seasonal events show, I cultural appropriation definitely crossed my mind. We didn't really discuss it much in that in that episode, but I think it is definitely something valid to consider when you're thinking about including holidays that belong to cultures other than your own. 
And, and David, since we got you here, are there any um, like national holidays in Portugal that you would that you would like to see expressed in video games, but don't really see because most mm. games sort of appeal to a an American Christian audience? Yeah, I think we have a couple of things uh, more regional. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it's a national thing, but we have, for example, the capital Lisbon and Porto. We have a couple of uh, days that are uh, celebration uh, celebrations and that could be fun to put on a game. But I'm not sure how that would resonate on a global thing. You know, it's probably yeah. one th only a thing that us. We, we we would understand but can't most of our holidays and are something that everyone else expects like Christmas and uh, Easter and Halloween Carnaval uh, that's also very popular in Brazil but I can't remember one that I would say yeah that should be in a game well, I feel like I feel like Carnaval would be a, a probably a very apt holiday to you know implement into video games I mean would you worry that the positive aspects of sort of like, you know, let's say Carnival would be missed or lost if it was reproduced by an American studio? If they don't, yeah, probably. If they don't... Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not saying because it's America. It's usually when it's something that's portrayed by someone that only they only saw it on the internet or on television... They can get the wrong picture, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. For example, I remember someone, and this is a true story. Someone uh, from uh, visit Portugal, and uh, I can't remember where they were from. But the main thing was we have a carnival here as well, like in Brazil. But our, ours is usually uh, it's uh, it's usually more uh, colder, and so everyone wears more clothes. Right, sure. And mm. They're used to seeing a more kind of naked people on the Brazilian <laughs> one. It's and they're like, "Isn't Carnival all about this?" And we're not. No, it's uh, it's not just about that. It's 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 an expression. It's it's uh, a bit. It's not exactly like Halloween, right? It's but it, it's kind of. I can't express properly. Even I can't express properly what it is, but. It has to be what they have to get people from the, the country or someone to research. It can't be just, oh, I saw something and they do this. And yeah, I uh, saw the I saw the movie Rio. I know what Carnival is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that deep. Guy. It can't be that yeah. thing. Yeah. The same yeah, way exactly. that we probably have uh, have a misconception. Uh, is that the word misconception? Uh, like not knowing if, uh, mm -hmm. like a, the wrong idea of. Yeah. How, uh, uh, events in uh, America in the U.S., for example, Thanksgiving. I'm pretty sure that we, everyone else, probably gets the wrong idea of what's that about. But even so, like if an American studio approached Carnival, and even if they got it like wrong, you don't, you wouldn't see that as well. At least they like tried to embrace my culture. It would just be you. You would view it as like, nope, this they got it wrong, and that. I don't. I, I guess I don't know what I'm going at with this. Like, like it, uh, it worries you that the, you know, if they got it wrong, it would do more damage than good. 
I think it depends on how bad it was. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's uh, one of those. Oh, it wasn't that bad, or it was really terrible. I think it will depend on that. Yeah, I just think there's there's a super fine line between like cultural appropriation and like a cultural appreciation and cultural yeah. like exploitation you know it's like if you're exactly if you're gonna go into carnival and and not talk about you know not explore any of the things that people appreciate about the holiday and there's like hey check out this super skimpy outfit you can get for your avatar yeah, if you buy exactly. it for 15 dollars limited time like that'll get gross really quick but um you know if, if, if it goes into it and they make a whole big deal of like look at these decorations and then like in a loading screen they're like oh yeah so this this is what this holiday is about uh, you know, I think is like the minimum that they could do to to make it more, you know, informative and make it really cool. Um, yeah. I don't know what the situation was on on Assassin's Creed Origins. Uh, this is getting a little off topic, but when they released their educational mode, they like really like used those assets and their their world to like teach people things. And I think that there's an opportunity for uh, other games to explore that with you know seasonal type things. It's it, they just have to do the the proper research and. Using that, we've seen in some games like uh, putting the uh, games where they have realistic settings or towns, and they just copy some sign from an Arab country or a Japanese or a Chinese. That I'm mentioning these because they're usually uh, languages that most people don't know, like mm -hmm. most people don't speak. So they just see something and they put it into a game, and then it turns out it's offensive or it's. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it, and that's it's a shame because they probably want to put a, a make a, a better represent or represent that country and make it mm -hmm. more inclusive, and they end up doing the exact opposite. Yeah, just because you take, you take the shortcut and you get bit by it for sure. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, that was a great question, great comment. Thank you, Chester Copperpot. Please send send Chester us more feedback. Everyone listening, send us more no, feedback. We we need we need more. Jared, tell him tell him to send us more feedback. Do it do it. If you're <laughs> listening from Portugal, send it in. We'll we'll just uh, we'll have David translate for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And again, any any feedback you have, uh, send it to us at podcast at gbfeature.com. And I think that concludes another exciting episode of Game Breaking Feature. How did we do? Did we do good? We did. We did good. I think we did. Well. We did good. Yeah. All right. Cool. <laughs> before we before we get out of here, I, I have to thank our guest, David Amador. David, thank you so much for joining us, man. Thank you for staying up late on your Saturday evening to uh, hang out with us and chat about shops and video games. Where can people find your work and where can they follow you? So th first of all, thank you for the invitation. It was really fun. Um, and where people can find me, uh, well, they can find the game on pretty much all platforms right now. They can just search on the store Quest of Dungeons, but there's a website, questofdungeons.com, that can find me on Twitter at uh, DJ underscore link. And if they want to ask questions or just random stuff, they I'm usually there and I answer very quickly. And yeah, that's it pretty much. And I will, I will highly recommend that anybody who listens to this show uh, go follow David on Twitter because actually the reason I found you David was um, you had posted a thread about sort of like little tricks that developers had used to sort of solve different problems things like you know in Skyrim anytime you see a desk it's actually a bookshelf that's buried underground with just the top part exposed you know little things like that and I think if if 
someone's listening to this show, they probably have at least some, I don't know, some interest in design development and, and those little, those little tricks were interesting. And you're always, at least from when I've been following you, always posting things that are, that are interesting in that way. So please, if you're listening to the show and you like, you like sort of the things that we talk about here, go, go give David a follow. Cause he's got all kinds of uh, interesting tweets going out there. I actually made, uh, I started a thread <laughs> today about uh, inventories because I was re- making some research. When you told me, oh, we're going to talk about shops, I started making some research and I ended up starting a thread about inventories and some good and some bad. <laughs> so uh, that's that's been my thing lately. Like I just start digging on some subject and I just fill up a thread with random yeah. stuff that I found. Yeah, I saw that one. That one that one was really cool. Some some great examples of sort of the gamification of inventory systems. That was really neat. As a reminder, we release new episodes of this podcast every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to our iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. I'm at Jared Grinner on Twitter. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you.